0: Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Vanity of Vanities by Pastor Sean Wood. Father, we thank you that uh, you're always talking to us, but my prayer now is that our ears would be open and our hearts would also be open. Lord, as we come around your word, may we see more of you, I pray in your glorious name. Amen. Um, thank you, Karen, for inviting your sister to be with us. It's... it's um, Oh, so, yeah. uh, so, very nice. Uh, I, I see you've abdicated the front row, but I'll get you next time when we come back, uh, Rob. So uh, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to John 4, that's where I'll finish today. I, I want to begin uh, just with a quick scan through the book of Ecclesiastes, but Uh, I've I've said this before, I watched a movie that absolutely touched my life, which is called Lone Survivor. If you haven't watched Lone Survivor, put the kids to bed, then watch Lone Survivor. It's reasonably graphic, but it's a true story of uh, four Navy SEALs in Afghanistan that are sent on a mission. And the mission was to take out a guy that was known to knock off quite a few soldiers and put it on YouTube and all this sort of stuff. So they go and they find this guy. They trek through the mountains. Communications a problem. They knew that before they left, that communication was going to be a problem the whole way along. And uh, they finally reached the point that they wanted to be at and they hunker down for a snooze. And uh, a goat farmer trundles across their way with his two sons. And there's much deliberation between them about what they should do about this because it turns out that the father uh, had a walkie-talkie, so he was obviously communicating with somebody. Uh, They didn't speak the language. And after much deliberations, some would say they made the wrong choice I say they made the right choice when they let the people go. And what happened is the oldest son runs straight down into the village, tells everybody in the village that there are four men up on the hill. But they... They calculated the odds beforehand and they turned around behind them. They never looked at any maps, but they turned around behind them and said, all we have to do is make the summit of this mountain here. We can get communications out because they couldn't ask anybody back at base because communications were down. But we can get out communications, fly in the choppers, get us out of here and we'll deal with the situation later. So off they trundle. Everything's going according to plan until they reach the summit and realise it's not actually the summit. In fact, they're still a long way from the summit of the mountain. They can't get any communications out and they call that a false summit. The truth of the matter is that every single person at some point in their lives tends to climb false mountains. Uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in Manhattan, says that he sees a lot of affluent people in Manhattan, a lot of people that come chasing the dream to become involved in the movie industry. And he said it's interesting, he said that they work, you know, he said these guys work three or four jobs, they're they're, they're knocked back hundreds of times, but when they finally make it, he said something happens. He said they finally realised they've climbed that mountain and nothing's there. What they hoped would be standing at the top of the mountain to greet them is not there. They realise that everything they hoped for and everything they were invested in is just as empty as everything else. We live today, I feel, particularly in Western society where people are chasing false summits. Uh, I watched uh, a program recently, Air Crash Investigation. Uh, um, do not—I don't know why—I don't like flying anyway, so I don't even know why I watch these shows. Um, but it's interesting how there was one case where an aeroplane had crashed and uh, the pilots did absolutely everything wrong because they assumed that uh, they were a certain height off the ground, they assumed they were in a certain location and they didn't even look at the instruments. And this is, what, this is the kind of life we live in now, you know. We're, we've got so many people that tell us that there is no absolute truth. Uh, you know, truth is whatever you want to call it and there's, there's no absolute morality. We just make up our own morality as we go along. And just like those pilots, we're making up our own minds without looking at the instruments. You know, there's warnings and everything going off in the cockpit and they're they're, they're playing it back, listening to the... By the way, if you're going to buy a seat on an aeroplane, I've decided, buy the seat closest to the black box. (laughs) Because if anything goes wrong, that's the first thing they go looking for. But as they're playing back the recordings, they realise all these guys had to do was trust their instruments. And you know what? As we're going throughout our lives, all we have to do is pause long enough to have a look at the instruments. Something's not right and something's not working when the leading cause of death in males between the age of 15 and 44 is suicide something's wrong. When I was a cleaner at the LGH, Launceston is only a city of 200,000 people and there was four rooms at the end of the aisle that was always manned by a nurse. Why? Because they were the rooms where adolescents had attempted to take their lives. What's wrong with society when young people barely in their teenage years put their hands up and say, I can't find any meaning or purpose in life anymore? Because what we're offering is empty. And we're going to remain empty until such time as we find what Blaise Pascal said, the only one that can fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts. A oh, beautiful sentence. He says, every one of us has a God-shaped hole in our heart. We try to cram everything else in there, you know. You could be sitting here and you could be a Christian for 15 years and still be trying to cram things into that hole. We'll get to that in a moment. We'll talk about a lady that met Jesus in a moment. But I want to scan quickly through the book of Ecclesiastes and just try to highlight a little bit more. Just lift the lid. That's what I like about Ecclesiastes is the writer of Ecclesiastes, he lifts the lid on, on what's going on in life. We, we live life with many elephants in the room, but we never address them. We never, we never realise that quite often life uh, is random. you ever noticed how good things happen to bad people and sometimes bad things happen to good people? Have you ever noticed that that actually happens? Have you ever noticed that, uh, as we begin in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, have you ever noticed that so much of life can be vanity? Have you ever noticed that uh, so much of life can be empty and meaningless? Because that's what vanity means. The Hebrew word is hevel and it it speaks of a vapour and a smoke and it's trying to convey the idea, the the writer who is Solomon tries to convey the idea that life is like a vapour and a smoke, you're trying to get your hands around it to grab onto something solid but every time there's nothing there. We try to build our lives on this vapour and this smoke but in the end nothing's there. In chapter 1, he says, have you ever noticed that all the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that life just keeps going around and around? It kind of speaks as though somebody's behind everything. I don't know why God's the crazy option. I love what Vince Vitale says. He says, I don't know why God's the crazy option. I don't know why we're considered the crazy ones for believing that God spoke the universe into agreement. We are currently sitting upon a rock that is spinning at 68,000 miles an hour and has done so for thousands and thousands of years and never got a tweak off beat. And if it does, we're not here. I spoke yesterday, we were talking yesterday about the greatest, I think the greatest advocate for the Christian faith is Sir Richard Attenborough. David Attenborough. David, excuse me. He is not a Christian, and in fact, he would say, I'm a naturalist, but, man, you watch his documentaries. He is exposing the intricate works of a glorious God. And Ecclesiastes is the journey of a man that says, you know what? I'm going to have a, I'm going to lift the lid on life. I'm going to, I'm going to have a look at life. I'm going to search for meaning. And he says, he says in chapter one, I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He goes on to say that we, he has seen everything that is done and it's like striving after the wind. If all this life is there, if, if all that's on offer is what's in this life, that it's like striving after the wind. You're wasting your time. Uh, have you ever watched, I've been to a few funerals. Some here have been to more. But have you ever noticed that the hearse pulls up at a funeral, but there's no U-Haul truck? Have you ever noticed that all the possessions and everything that we amount in this life, that they don't bring it with us? Some clown over in South America, I think, is trying to uh, bury his Bentley or something with him at the moment. But can you see that everything in this life is meaningless outside of God. That's the conclusion that the writer of Ecclesiastes comes to. But let's, let's go for a bit of a walk on his journey. He, he comes to, if you come to chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, you'll find that he realised that God and life is very seasonal. Have you ever noticed that no matter what you try and do, that winter will still come? Have you ever noticed that spring will still come? In fact, have you ever noticed it's been doing it for years? Right on cue. But the beautiful thing is that God is telling us something in the physical that pertains to the spiritual. There are seasons in the physical life and there are seasons in the spiritual life. And I I am convinced there are people sitting in this room this morning that would put their hand up and go, I feel like I'm going through winter at the moment. I know there's people sitting here this morning that goes, I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor. Everything's rocking. I feel like I'm in summer, just enjoying the fruits. But there's a time for everything. There's a a time for planning, a time for harvest. There's a time to live and there's a time to die. And the book of Ecclesiastes lifts two lids that we all need to understand. Two things that we cannot control that are imposed upon man. First one is time. Fight it as you might. Time will take its toll. As the years progress on, fight it as you like. You can't do what you used to be able to do. Wrinkles form where there weren't any wrinkles before. I, I know I'm not... A, not everybody can have complexion like this. You too could have a body like mine if you neglect it. But... <laughs> at the end of the day, time is imposed on us and so is death. And what we do... God has given us, a Jesus uses, used a beautiful world in a parable in, in Luke. It says that he speaks about the foolish one that, that builds bigger barns. He says, you foolish one, today your life will be required of you. And that required in the Greek speaks of a bank manager coming back to take back. In other words, what God is saying is what, what I lent you and what I leased to you, I'm taking back. I gave you this portion of time to prepare yourself for the real life. Don't turn up empty when you're standing before him. The writer to Ecclesiastes comes to a great conclusion. There are seasons in life. Ravi Zacharias beautifully says that time is the brush of God as he paints his masterpiece on the heart of humanity. And God has a beautiful way of coming into our mess. We're going to have a look at that when we get to Luke, John chapter 4. He has a beautiful way of creating a message out of our mess. He had no choice when he came to me. If you're going to do anything, you're going to have to do something with the mess that I've got here. Who knows that he can do better with it than we can anyway? You may as well just give it over to him. We come to chapter 5, and by the time we get to verse 10 of chapter 5, we will see that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. I have to tell you that when it comes to life, satisfaction is often sold separately, it's listed in the fine print. That the things of this life don't always give us satisfaction. That, that, that career and that promotion doesn't always... It's like a false summit in our life. You can, you can climb to the top, but you realise nothing's there. Satisfaction is all too often sold separately. I want to put this quote up on the screen for you to look at for a while because Rabbi Zacharias hits the nail on the head when he says that uh, <coughs> pleasure without God, without the sacred boundaries will actually leave you emptier than before. And this is biblical truth, and this is experiential truth. The loneliest people in the world are amongst the wealthiest and most famous who found no boundaries within which to live. That is a fact I've seen again and again. Uh, Sometimes the most successful, apparently, people in the world are the most desperately lonely and desperately empty because they climbed to the top of a mountain that they thought would bring them all the satisfaction and realise, unless God is at the top of that mountain, satisfaction is sold separately. By the time we get to chapter 6, we find that uh, man knows not. We move on to, to, sorry, chapter 9, verse 11 says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not always to the swift. Have you ever noticed that? Collingwood is feeling that right now. (laughs) Collingwood is licking their wounds going, you know what, we actually had the better set of legs on the day. But the race isn't always to the swift and... The battle is not always to the strong and nor is bread to the wise or riches to the intelligent. Why? Because time and chance happen to us all. There are, uh, there are things that are outside of our control and we may not know what the future holds, but the beauty is you can know the one who holds the future today. There are people sitting in this room today that can put their hand up and say, I can tell you now, five years ago, I wouldn't have believed I am in the position I'm in today. That could be good, that could be bad. Who would have thought that Megan would be pregnant with twins (laughs) last year? (laughs) Why? Because by the time we get to verse 12 of chapter 9, man does not know his time. Every person in this room is not guaranteed to make it to lunchtime. There is nobody in this room guaranteed to make it to morning tea. And if we actually lived with that sense and reality of that, it would change the way we lived. And I speak that to my own shame. C.S. Lewis says that those that have made the greatest impact in this life are those that live with the full perception of the next. That we will stand before the one who spoke this universe into existence. And if he did not, and if God is not real, then give me a plausible reason that, that he didn't. Give me another good argument because evolution doesn't work. We should stop teaching that in our schools. We come to chapter 11 and we take some encouragement as we come to the end of Ecclesiastes because he says, you know what, time and chance happen to all, we're not in control, God is the one in control, life is here for you to enjoy, it's like God says, go ahead and enjoy all the departments of life, but make sure I'm the building. And the writer to Ecclesiastes says, you know what, you can you can divide your house up however you like, if if God's given you food, eat it. If, if God's given you family, enjoy them. If God's given you stuff in this world, enjoy it. But make sure He is the building because therein lies all the satisfaction. Is enjoying everything that He has given us in this life. And He says in chapter 11, cast your bread upon the waters. In other words, get out and live life, but do it inside of God. Verse 4 of chapter 11, he who observes the wind will not sow. We had a saying in Tasmania that says, if you wait for the perfect day to go fishing, you will keep on waiting. In other words, stop looking at the wind, forget about the forecast and just get on with life. But what if I get sick or or what if something happens? What if, what if God showed up today? You might be sitting here today saying, you know what, uh, there's some lids that have been lifted on my life. And I want to come to a lady who had a few lids lifted in her own life, John chapter 4. You know, the, the story, there is a story some years ago in South America of a crew of Peruvian sailors that were heading towards the Amazon River. And as they, as they approach the Amazon River, they find that there is a a Spanish ship anchored there. And when they get on board, they find all the sailors stretched out uh, in, in a desperate, desperate condition. And they say, what, what on earth can we do for you? And they say, water, water. Uh, the guys, are st- these Peruvians standing there going, chuck your buckets over the side. And they go, no, 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 you don't understand. We, we need fresh water. And again, these Peruvians go, chuck your buckets over the side. Unbeknownst to the Spanish fleet, they were sitting right on top at the mouth of the Amazon River. They're sitting right on top of fresh water and dying of thirst. We live in Western society today where so many people are sitting right on top of fresh water but choosing to die of thirst. The living water. It's the kind of satisfaction you can only find in Christ. Chapter 4 of John would bring us to Jesus traveling and as he does, he stops at a well and you have to remove, when it comes to Jesus in particular, you have to remove the word coincidence. You see, Jesus stops at a well, it's actually Jacob's well and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, it was about the sixth hour, that's important. Verse 7 of chapter 4 says that a woman from Samaria came to draw water. We need to know a few things about this woman before we go any further. The first thing is she's drawing water at the sixth hour. The second thing is she's on her own. Those are the two things you didn't do in the first century. If you wanted to draw water, all the ladies went out to the well in the morning or in the evening when it was cool to draw water and they never went alone. Immediately we begin to understand there's something going on with this woman. So many people reach the position that this woman's in and go, you know what? Jesus would never want to talk with me. Jesus, Jesus could not do anything with me. But I want everybody in this room to know this morning that just like this woman, Jesus is waiting at the well. And he's waiting for you. Oh yes, pastor, but I've been a Christian for many years. Great, he still waits for you at the well. There's something about water, you've got to keep drawing it. There was a woman from Samaria who came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Men, please take a note, Jesus always treated women with high value. Secondly, Jesus never obeyed cultural taboos. It was against culture of that day to speak for a man to speak to a woman. It was certainly against culture for a Jew to speak to a Samaritan. And I love this about Jesus. He says, I don't care about your culture and I don't care about your taboos. I'm at the well. And if you turn up, none of that matters. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew new. Jesus is drawing her attention to what it is that she lacks. You lack a knowledge of who I am because if, if you fully understood the gift of God, and this gift is in the Greek is doria, and I, and I say that with a bit of an accent because it makes me sound intelligent, but uh, the Greek word is doria and it's only used in a handful of places in the New Testament and every time it is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I've got something to give you. It's like the gift that keeps on giving. It's like children. God says, He's a gift that just keeps on giving. <laughs> if you knew the gift of God and who it was, you'd ask me because you'd know that I could give you something that would fill that hole inside your heart. You knew, you would know if you knew who I was, you wouldn't leave here empty and you wouldn't leave here thirsty. Why? Because I would give you this living water. Stagnant water becomes contaminated and no good for anything. But this living water is moving and there's there's something about this living water. It removes thirst and it preserves life and it's cleansing. But there's something else about water. That long exposure brings a softening. If, if, If you take your hand and dip it in and out of water, it has very little effect. But if you left your hand in water for any extended period of time, you would find that things become soft. You can pick calluses off for those that have them. I don't have any anymore. But things become soft after long exposure. Oh, how we've become hard to the living water. Let's keep going on. Uh, The woman would answer him and say to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Jesus is going to show her in a moment. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Yes, that goes without saying. He gave us the world and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And you know, if you read the chapter before, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he's using a, he's using a physical, something we can understand from the physical and he's applying it to a spiritual truth. And he says to Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, uh, you come in by birth. You come in by new birth. And immediately Nicodemus is looking for a womb. He's like, oh, how does a man be born again when he's however old Nicodemus was and here Jesus is standing with this woman saying I have water that will mean you'll never be thirsty again it's the greatest gift you could receive and she says where's your bucket she's missed it and Jesus said to her everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again And can I tell you this morning that if you are trying to fill that hole in your heart with anything apart from Christ, you will always come up thirsty. You will always come up empty and you will always arrive at that false summit. There's no problems with the communications. God's given us the communications to find the summit. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water. And that word spring is like leaping and bubbling up. And The difference between a well and a spring is a well takes effort to get the water out, but a spring just naturally bubbles over. You can't put a cap in it because the pressure builds up and it'll blow out. What's our job? Our job is to be exit points for the spring of living water. Welling up to eternal life, Jesus says to a thirsty woman which is a verb, the word thirst here is a verb, the only place you should be drinking is here. You know, satisfying thirst is not about how much we drink, it's about where. Quenching spiritual thirst isn't about how much stuff or, or how many places you visit or, or whatever it is. The smallest drop from the cup of Christ could satisfy us for very, very long. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. You'll have to come here to draw water. And Jesus is going to now. So Jesus said to her, he says, go call your husband and then come here, which was right because you shouldn't speak to a woman in the first century without her husband present. And the woman answered him, I, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. now we begin to get a back, the back story. Quite often people have backstories. You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And Jesus, the greatest heart surgeon in the universe, is beginning to do heart surgery. He has opened her heart and says you are visiting many, many wells and finding that they are empty. How many times will you come to this well and find that you won't find your deepest satisfaction in an earthly relationship? You won't find the deepest satisfaction in acceptance from other people, but knowing my acceptance. Many of us visit worlds. Some people's worlds look like social media. We come there looking for our acceptance and uh, has somebody liked or, or, or somebody defriends us on Facebook. It's like, <gasps> what happened? I want to challenge you this morning because just like this lady, Jesus desires to to expose the worlds that we all come to. Christian, non-Christian, believer, non-believer, everybody has worlds and Jesus demands that he be the only place we come to draw. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, now we're going to go, we're going to, we need to change the subject really quick, Jesus, because you've just opened my heart, and I want to run away from this. And it's interesting, if we can have the next quote, uh, Ravi Zacharias puts this beautifully. I think the reason we sometimes have the false sense that God is so far away is because that is where we have put him. We have kept him at a distance and then when we are in need and call on him in prayer, we wonder where he is. He's exactly where you left him. It's interesting that Jesus has exposed her heart and she wants to digress. But isn't it interesting the direction the, uh, the conversation takes now? The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet because our fathers worshipped. Oh, okay. Now, now Jesus has got to where he wants to be. Now Jesus has got to the topic that he actually wants to talk about. We've been talking about wells and we've been talking about water. But at the end of the day, Jesus wants to expose what it is that she's been worshipping. You're worshipping everything except from me. In fact, he's going to tell this woman, you worship what you do not know. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to a woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, what Jesus is saying is when it comes to worship, worship is not going to be about location anymore, it's going to be about the heart. See, in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where heaven and earth met. See, heaven's not, we don't have to shout. God can, God's not thousands of miles away. Uh, we've put men on the moon and they couldn't find him because he's not up there. He's right here. In fact, heaven and earth are, are closely linked because when we get to the book of Revelation, John says, I saw a door opened and heaven. It's right here. There's no distance. In the Old Testament, it was a place where heaven and earth met and Paul had the profound statement that in the New Testament, we are that temple. And Jesus says, worship now looks like everything that happens inside this temple. Worship's about a posture of life. Worship's about an attitude. God is seeking those who drop the ceremony and come from the heart. Worship is a verb that requires us to have empty hearts. Come with me down to verse 27. The conversation goes on. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? And then the woman leaves her water jar. The reason that she came, the reason that she was there was to draw water. And upon meeting the source of eternal water, she leaves her jar. She abandons everything. What I love about Jesus is the story ends with him placing the greatest value. The first evangelist is this woman from Samaria. She runs back into the village. She tells everybody simply what had happened to her. Come and meet a man. Come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Come and meet somebody who actually exposed my heart and my wells and my idols. Come and meet a man. And upon his testimony, they all come to meet Jesus. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 4, it says they didn't believe any more because of her testimony, but because they had met him themselves. Today I want to invite every single person to do that. I want to invite every single person to leave your jar. Just forget about it. We get caught up in jars and wells and buckets and Jesus says, I'm standing here waiting. I've got a gift for you. If you are sitting here today and you're empty, if you're sitting here today and you're thirsty, I want you to know that Jesus is waiting at the world. I want to encourage everybody to leave their jars and to come and meet a man. The God-man. The most glorious man that ever walked the earth. Where just a drop of this gift could well up into eternity. Can we bow our heads in prayer? Sonia, could you just come and tinkle for a moment on the keyboard? Jesus, I thank you that we no longer have to be thirsty, we no longer have to be empty. we no longer have to face the future and the uncertainty on our own. I thank you this morning, Jesus, that just as this woman met you at the world with all of her mess, that it's okay for us to bring all of our mess and meet you at the world. There are so many days when I have so much mess myself and I am so grateful I'm so grateful to you, Jesus, that you come and take all of our mess. You come and take all of our sin. You come and take all of our shame. You come and take all of our emptiness and you give us meaning and purpose. Jesus, to me, I testify that you are magnificent. It's a privilege to know you. I pray every person in this room would not leave thirsty. I pray nobody would leave here today empty. I pray that you would, Lord, that they would come to the world and realize that they haven't found you, but that you have actually found us. In your wonderful name, Jesus, I ask that living water would flow in this place today. If you, for any reason today, need prayer, then... The altar's always open and the the elders and the leadership are here. Don't go through life empty. Don't go through life thirsty. Just like those Spanish sailors, all any of us have to do is throw our buckets over the side to drink. In your wonderful name, we conclude this morning the Philippians uh, entered into partnership with Paul. Paul's talking about giving in that respect, but the word partnership speaks of two people taking their hand in hand and saying, I'm going to partner with you for the spread of the gospel and for the work of the kingdom. So that's what partnership is. Partnership is uh, what, what partnership is here for the rock is for you saying, this is where God's planted me, so this is where I'm going to bloom. And we want to give everybody the opportunity. We have a photo frame that was signed last time we had Partnership Sunday. But if you want to partner with us, if you want to say, you know what, this, the, this isn't something we record. Uh, we, don't take, we don't take photos and send it to Interpol. We don't do any of those things. But if you want to partner with us in the vision for Christ, and, and you can do that without signing the frame. But if you want to make that pledge today, then you can come down and there will be time for you to sign the frame. But we have some core values, which I have highlighted recently in the newsletter. And they are the five I's. The first one is invite, that as a church, we are reaching out and being an invitational church with open doors for anybody. All are welcome and we want to reach out more to the lost. Increase is about fostering an atmosphere of environment and growth. We want to, we want to foster an environment here that allows people to grow in their relationship with Christ. Intensify is about living passionately in intimacy with God. So much easier when, when you want to do something. Invest is about having open-handed generosity of our talents and our means, and inspiring is about each one coming into the fullness of God's gifting for them. I believe God is saying something both as a church this morning, as he says, in a city on a hill, but also as individuals to let our lights shine and to stop looking at what it is that perhaps we do not have and embrace what it is that God has given us and allow him to do the miraculous with what he's put in our hands. Can we stand together, please, as we pray? Bow our heads before the almighty God. Father, this morning, I thank you for everything that you have placed in our hands. I thank you for all the wonderful people that make up this community. It is a pleasure, Lord, to pastor this wonderful group of people. Lord, we pledge a partnership with you now, that wherever you would find us, Lord, may we take your hand today as well. Lord, I pray that you would remove dimmer switches in this room right now. I pray, Lord, that you would raise up a community and a team here that will be fully equipped and live worthy of the wonderful calling you've given to each and every one of us. Lord, we take your hand this morning and we say, here's what we have. Here's our five loaves and two fishes. We say that as a church and we say it as individuals this morning. Here's what we have in our hands, Lord, and we invite you to do the miraculous. We invite you to set the captives free, Lord, just as you did in Egypt. We invite you to gloriously make yourself known just as you did to the people of Israel. We invite you to make your invitation to a dying world through us. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity of being joined to Christ. We thank you for the opportunity of being joined to one another. And this morning we say amen and amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available,